Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by Frank Pelota. Uh, Frank, I was looking at my schedule. I was like, wait, it's been it's been three months. It's been three months. We got to check back in with CNN's Frank Pelota uh, on the business of Hollywood. How are you doing, Frank? I'm good. You don't call. You don't write. I go three months without hearing from you. I was like, is, is he ever going to call me back? And I guess... I guess I, I guess I'm opening my heart to hurt again, but I'm here. okay. You know, I well, you've had enough heartache with the Mets. I know it's been a it's been a bad it's been a bad couple weeks there, but we'll we'll try and we'll try and make you happy. We're going to talk about fun stuff today. Box office, box office. We last time I had you on, it was a summer preview. Let's look at the summer post view. How did the summer shake out for everybody? Uh, from your perspective, as uh, as the uh, preeminent business reporter uh, uh, of Hollywood news. Who was the big winner at the box office aside from Top Gun Maverick? I mean, I think we all know that Top Gun Maverick, Tom Cruise, winner number one. Who was the big winner beside them? Uh, and who was one big loser uh, from this okay. last period? So let me start here by saying you asked how the summer went. And I have to say, I cannot think of a better way for the summer to go for theaters and for studios in this uh, still kind of pandemic world we're living in, because there was a lot of questions coming into it. I remember talking to someone last year about last summer and they were like, listen, this one's kind of like the, the dress rehearsal for next year. If next year isn't very good, then we have big problems. I think it's if you take Top Gun away from it, this was really the year, uh, I, I think it was the summer of the multiple. And what I mean by that is a multiple is you take whatever the opening, you take whatever the final domestic gross is, and you divide it by the opening and you usually get like a times multiple. Most movies are like three times or two times. Like Endgame, I believe, was about like three and a half times. And that's one of the biggest movies of all time. There are multiple movies this summer. Obviously, the big boy is Top Gun Maverick. That was like five and a half, the biggest multiple ever for something over that opened to over $100 million. But take away that you have movies like Elvis, where the crawdads sing, uh, these other movies that did really well, these movies that were for audiences that, you know, aren't your superhero type of audience. So you asked me what the big winner is this summer. And to, to really answer that question, I think the best way to kind of think about it is, in my opinion, it's the Black Phone. Now, Black Phone is a, is a Blumhouse movie just uh, distributed by Universal. It was made for very, very little money as most Blumhouse does. And it's brought back, you know, it, it brought back uh, $159 million worldwide. And eight, uh, 89 of that is just in domestic alone. And I remember talking to some sources at some of the studios, including Universal. And most people were telling me that you would think, oh, what's the most profitable movie for Universal this year? It's probably Jurassic World Dominion. That was a huge hit this summer too, huge success. It's not, it's the black phone. It's because it's made for such a small amount of money and it brought in so much more money and over you know over the weeks and 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 of the summer it just kept bringing in it was an example of you know started small kept small but didn't slow down and it these are the type of movies that i think are potentially the future of hollywood it's kind of like everything old is new again this is how hollywood used to work you know it used to be it, people didn't care about a huge opening weekend that's a very new thing it's kind of like a marvelized thing where success was based on how many records you broke your opening weekend it used to be is this movie profitable how profitable it is and to me i think 
you know, of all those movies, the black phone uh, was the most uh, successful of them. Now, if you ask me what the biggest loser was, it was also a horror movie that I thought was going to be a hit that you enjoyed and I enjoyed and came from a studio that has a huge cult following and that's Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. I just think that that movie just never found an audience. I don't know why it did. It's really funny. It's a really good time in the theater. It's got horror elements to it and it's got a really uh, great cast that's young and upcoming. And it just it just did not stick, which is really weird considering that everything everywhere all at once, and I'm very impressed that I finally got that title right for once, um, did incredibly well earlier this year for A24. And I, I remember, I think I might even have said this to you in a DM or something. I said, I think this movie is going to be a huge hit for A24, and it just never stuck. And you can make a lot of arguments why it didn't. I think one of the main arguments is that Maybe the audience that they were trying to cultivate was actively being made fun of inside of the theater. And it was maybe they had an allergic reaction to that. But those are the two kind of like, if you take away all the blockbusters and everything like that, those are the two kind of things that I find really interesting about this summer is that you had these two type of like movies you wanted to see in theaters, horror elements, which is just a huge genre right now. And one was incredibly successful that not a lot of people saw. And another one was, I mean, that excuse me, one was hugely successful that a lot of people saw over amount of time. And another one was kind of set up for that. And it just kind of did not work. When you when you say that uh, the Black Phone is Universal's biggest uh, movie of the year, are we talking return on investment? Are we talking percentage? Yes. Not not like yeah, overall, t- like, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. It's not even close. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure like Jurassic World made more in one weekend <laughs> domestically sure. than uh, Black Phone did uh, its entire run so far. I mean, return on investment. Okay. And, and I'm happy you brought that up because I like, again, you know, it's funny you thought of, uh, we're talking about this because I'm thinking back to last week when Martin Scorsese was talking about uh, the focus on box office as this kind of, you know, weird thing that's hurting cinema that's almost kind of really disgusting. And I agree with him to a certain point. I'm a box office reporter. I mean, and he even says like, listen, it's a business and I've always understood that. But he's right to a certain extent that myself even and people like of my ilk who cover the box office we kind of got high on our own supply a little bit there where it was like oh my god this marvel movie broke another record oh my god this jurassic park movie broke another record and we kind of focused in on that and then we didn't come back a month later two months later to see where the movie kind of landed and we didn't give respect to some other movies that have done well another great one this summer this is a great example of this is Bullet Train. Bullet Train opened to about $35 million. A lot of people were saying, oh my God, kind of a flop, didn't really do that well. And the movie cost $90 million. It's not a cheap movie by any means, but it's brought in $235 million globally. So I don't know if it's, I don't know how profitable that is, but I'm not saying it's definitely not a flop. It's definitely not a bomb, but that's kind of how the image was. And that's something that I think us in the media do have to change is that come back to a movie a month later, two months later, or at the end of its run and see how much money it brought in. Because at the end of the day, we're seeing a transition now, I think in the industry from how many, how how much did you bring an opening weekend? How many subscribers do you have to, is this thing making you money? And I think that's a really important thing as we're coming out of the pandemic type of era we're in. Yeah. I mean, how much was Bullet Train helped by the fact that there just wasn't 
a ton of stuff in theaters. I mean, I I think I tweeted something like, you know, Bullet Train getting a, to 100 million on like pure nothing else to watch energy is pretty mm-hmm. impressive. Um, and there does I like I I ask because I do think that there is something to be said for reverting to a model where you have two big movies a month instead of a big tentpole every week. I mean, I, I know I'm a broken record on this, but I, I do think that there was a there was a marketplace glut that the pandemic is going to clear out a little bit. And that, I think, is good, really, for the for the industry. It's weird to say that, like, because I've written about this, that it's like, why, why aren't they opening more movies? Why is there not more movies? There is a certain level of overcorrection that we kind of saw in the 90s and 2000s. And we saw this with the amount of screens and the amount of movies where things kind of came out and it always kind of felt like, oh my God, all these all these movies are making money, all of these screens. We need more and more and more and more and more. And again, that kind of goes against what you know Hollywood had been for decades. And let's look at the fall. The fall had been completely desolate, but it allowed movies, some good, some bad, depending on your taste, to succeed in terms of their budgets. And if you look at the top three movies of the fall so far, they're all original movies. They're, it's Smile, which is horror, which we can get to a little bit later why horror is such a success, but that's $71 million. Then you have The Woman King, which brought in $59 million so far domestically. And these are all domestic grosses, by the way. Then you have the much talked about Don't Worry Darling. Halloween Ends is up there now because it just had a huge weekend with $40 million. And then Barbarian is, is at $38 million. Like these movies are not made for $400 million. These movies aren't even made for $100 million. They're made for a reasonable amount of money. They get some buzz. They they bring in people in the third, the second, third, fourth week. And I think it's, it's weird to say that the summer was a huge success, but the fall is maybe a better template for how this whole industry should work going forward, where you don't have five movies opening up on a weekend and three of them do badly. Yep. You know, maybe it's best to have one or two and have them both find audiences that they both are trying to get. Yeah, uh, let's talk about horror here because the, we are in something. We're in, we're in the midst of a a mild horror boom right now. I mean, we we mentioned Barbarian uh, and Smile. They not only opened better than expected, I think, but they did. They have held well, um, surprisingly well in the in the case of Smile. I mean, Smile is holding like Get Out held, you know, four or five years back. Um, so that that's that is good news. Um, but then you also have Halloween Ends, which I think people looked at and were a little bit disappointed by the opening. It was open. It opened about, I don't know, 20% below tracking. People said, mm-hmm. oh, well, maybe it was hurt by day and date. What's going on with horror? Why is horror still the only thing uh, that is that is really succeeding in getting folks out to the audi- uh, to the theater on a regular basis? And what happened with Halloween ends, do you think? Okay, so horror, right now, there's really just two genres that you can take to the bank, and that is your big blockbuster spectacles, mostly superhero movies, which we have talked ad nauseum about on this podcast and across many, many podcasts. And the other one is horror. So why do these two genres survive when other things like romantic comedies, uh, comedies in general, adult dramas, why have those all gone by the wayside and these two genres have really survived? And it's very simple. Watching a big spectacle in a theater and watching a horror movie in theater is much different than watching it at home. It's that simple. If you watch Top Gun at home, it's much different than watching it on an IMAX screen. You watch Smile at home, you don't have someone grabbing you next to you. You're not screaming next to a stranger. You're paying for that experience, which is, you know, 
why I think these movies have done incredibly well, because they're made for low budgets and then they, they force you to see them in theaters because you know what you're getting. At the end of the day, you know, what Hollywood really needs is more pre-awareness. And that's why you have such nostalgic things. That's what brings in audiences to basically sell the movie. If I'm selling you smile, I basically say it's, it, it's scary. You're going to have like, you're going to be scared for two hours, but you're going to have a blast. It's going to be like, a, it's going to be a theatrical haunted house. That's an easy sell. You understand what that is. It's usually these movies are like an hour and a half to two hours long. Bing, bang, boom, in and out. You have a great time. You get that blood rushing. Um, and there's also something psychological about horror that has to do with our society right now in that when times are kind of scary in the real world, it's actually kind of comforting and cathartic to be in a controlled, horrific environment. We don't know what's going to happen with, you know, there's wars going on, there's political strife going on, there's economic issues going on. There's a lot of scariness in the real world that you cannot control. I can control smile. Worst case scenario, if I really can't take it, I just leave, I'll just walk out. That's a really good benefit to uh, audiences. So now that brings us to Halloween Ends, which was projected to bring in more than $50 million. It brought in 40. So where did that $10 million go? It's very easy to say that, oh, well, people just stayed home and watched on Peacock. But with all due respect to Peacock, it's not Disney Plus. It's not Netflix. Um, it's hard pressed to find people outside of the Twitter sphere and out of the industry who really know what Peacock is. And my whole thing is, is yes, people could have stayed home and I bet a lot of people did. But I would say what maybe hurt the movie more is two other things that maybe aren't getting discussed enough about. And that's one, it had a C plus cinema score. So what does that mean? That means that uh, it doesn't mean the movie was necessarily bad. It means that it was not what people expected. And there's, I, I haven't seen Halloween ends yet. I've been trying to get to the theater to see it, but I've talked to some people who did it. And it sounds like it was not what a lot of people expected in terms of a finale to that franchise. But I think even bigger than a C plus cinema score, which can, you know, hurt box office returns, we're talking about diminishing returns here. The first Halloween opened to more than $70 million in 2018, one of the biggest horror openings of all time. Then that obviously that was a pre-pandemic, much different landscape. Last year, Halloween Kills, once again, day and date, opened to close to $50 million. This one opened to 40. At the end of the day, it's like, how many times can you watch Michael Myers stab somebody? What is this, the 13th Halloween movie? It, it, it loses freshness after a while. And even though this was like an epic conclusion, I don't think it had the type of epic conclusion feel that say, you know, some of like, you know, the final Fast and Furious movie might have or Endgame did, where it's like, I gotta see how this ends. It's like, you kind of got an idea that it's gonna end either two ways. Either Michael's gonna go down or most likely, since we've seen 13 of these movies, he's gonna find a way to survive. So I don't wanna place it all on streaming because last year we saw it it did pretty well and even over exceeded a little bit with the same exact playbook of going day and day. I think this movie was not what people expected. I think ultimately also just after a certain amount, even me, someone who loves Halloween, Halloween is my favorite, the original Halloween is my favorite horror movie. Um, I was just kind of like, can I, should I just stay home and watch this? Like I've kind of got, I kind of got the idea. Like I kind of understand what this is. So th that's what I think really hurt it more than even just streaming. Yeah. I'm curious to see what the, what the actual streaming numbers look like, whatever, whatever numbers we end up getting for, um, from um, some sources have told me that it's, it's one of the biggest for Peacock ever. So yeah. if you're looking at, 
if you're looking at this from an uh, NBC Universal standpoint, it's a win-win. You know, like the movie brought in forty million dollars. It was budgeted at thirty. All it needs to get to is probably like a hundred to one hundred fifty million dollars, which is not crazy to get to worldwide um, to become profitable. And then on top of that, you get this big benefit to Peacock, which is uh, you know important to NBC Universal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I another thing I think that people. Uh, need to keep in mind with this movie is that Halloween Kills was not beloved. I would say it was a lot of people did not did not love that movie and and how it ended, which always ends up impacting the next film in the series. I mean, I you know it's funny whenever I tell people that Mission Impossible Three has the worst gross of any Mission Impossible movie, they always look at me like what? But that's it was so good. It's got Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's like yes, but it came after Mission Impossible Two, which everyone hated. And there's been a reappraisal now. Everyone's like, oh, the John Woo Mission Impossible. That that's great. At the time, I remember seeing it in theaters and people were not were not stunned by it. Uh so Yeah, I mean the same thing happened with Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious 4 is not good. It's a it's a very it's a tough movie. Fast Five comes out and that's kind of went against everything, changed the complete template. They went from street racers to international spies with the rock. And then that's how you get six, seven, eight. So it, it depends. Like a sour taste in people's mouths lasts because people are very cautious with their money. And if you saw Halloween Kills and you didn't like it, you're just like, I'm not going. I'm not going to spend my money on something I'm not sure about. That that's the number one thing in Hollywood and has been since day one. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what are we what are we looking at for the next uh, couple months here? Because I, I we're we're getting back into blockbuster season. We've been in a blockbuster drought since uh, basically <laughs> Thor: Love and Thunder uh, came <laughs> out at the beginning of July. Uh, but now we've got Black Adam coming out this weekend. Uh, then yep. a couple weeks after that, we got Black Panther two, Wakanda Forever, and then new Avatar, new av- new Avatar movie gonna send us all back to Pandora. What are we what are we looking at at the box office? Um, I think we're looking at potentially two of maybe the top 10 biggest movies of all time opening before the end of this year. Whoa, that's yeah. Big prediction. Big prediction. Hot take. Um, I really do believe that. Uh, So let me start. uh, Let me before I get to Wakanda and uh, Avatar, which is very easy to talk about. Let me talk about a few other little things that are happening. So Black Adam's going to be really interesting. You can throw rock and literally hit a photo of The Rock as Black Adam wherever you go. They are promoting the movie crazily. The Rock is the hardest working guy in the business. Um, that should be interesting. I don't know necessarily if it'll be like DC's another one where it's just like really hit or miss. Uh, I think it'll depend on what the reviews are for that from both on social, from fans. Uh, the other interesting thing this weekend too is you have Ticket to Paradise. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit because that's the George Clooney, Julia Roberts romantic comedy. And we're coming off of Bros, which was probably the biggest bomb of the year. And there was a lot of controversy about like, you know, Billy Eichner said, you know, straight people didn't come out for this movie, blah, 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 blah. When my argument was, I don't know if that's the case, because if your movie opens to four and a half million dollars, it's not that straight people didn't come out to support your movie. No one came out to support your movie. And it's a much easier sell with Julie Roberts and George Clooney. And I think it's much easier to sell a movie by saying, hey, you like these people, right? This is fun. Come see it rather than this is a groundbreaking movie. You need to come see this to support this type of you know movie being made. And I'm curious to see if that does well. So now there's a few movies like that opening in the next couple of weeks that are going to be kind of like that. you know. But the biggest two going forward, uh, to get back to my prediction, is Wakanda Forever. And let me start there. So Wakanda Forever opens next month. Uh, 
I think that movie's going to open to bigger than two hundred million dollars. I just I think it is because of two things. It's it's arguably probably the originals, maybe one of the best films, and I do say films that Marvel's ever made. Marvel's made a lot of content. They haven't made a lot of films. Ryan Coogler is one of the best directors in Hollywood. Uh, it's a movie with a with mostly a, a you know people of color cast. That's very important. And it's coming at a time when people have forgotten about going to the movies. They've gone to these smaller movies like Smile and Don't Worry Darling and things like that. But this is the first event we've had since Thor Love and Thunder. And I think people are itching to see a movie in theaters of this level. Then there's obviously the X factor, which is I know a lot of people who don't even like Marvel who are seeing this movie to see how they're going to handle the, the tragic death of Chadwick Boseman as the main character. And I got to be honest, I got to give Disney credit here. They have marketed this movie beautifully. Everything they've brought out, that first trade, I was really iffy about this movie. I was just all summer long, I was kind of banging the drum of like, I think Marvel has kind of peaked itself. Um and I think people, there's a lot of superhero fatigue. And then I saw that first trailer with the Kendrick Lamar and the Bob Marley and this very like emotional feel. And I was like, I, I got to see this movie. This movie looks incredible. And I think every marketing material I've seen since then, it seems like the plot of this movie is, you know, Black Panther has died. And now the rest of the world is trying to take the resources of Wakanda, which is a really interesting movie and an interesting framing. And then on top of that, you have a new character with Neymar, who's very popular among us Marvel fans, who is the king of Atlantis. And you have this war going on. It just seems really interesting. And it seems like there's a lot of secrets behind it, even more so than a normal Marvel movie. I just think the mixture of people desperate to see a big event movie and I'd argue that there hasn't been even a big event movie to this scale since Top Gun, uh, which was more of a surprise. This one has a bigger runway, to not use a pun. Um, and then the Chadwick Boseman X Factor, it's just going to it's gonna blow up in a big, big way. I really do believe that. And I think for Disney then, that it, it, it has a, about a month to do that. And I think anybody who wants to bet against James Cameron, go right ahead. He, people have been doing that for the last 20 years. Um, so... I'm looking at the results of the re-release of Avatar, which I saw in theaters again. And I kind of forgot, I kind of forgot why that movie is the biggest movie of all time, because it is, there is a whole generation of people who never saw that movie in theaters, who don't understand what the big deal is. They watched it on, you know, cable, they watched it on Disney plus, and they're just like, this, this is kind of like Pocahontas with blue people. I don't get it. It seems lame. I mean, the action's kind of nice, but whatever. When you see that movie in theaters, you leave, you leave Earth like you just you just do. And, um, you know, I think that that is going to be a big, big thing for a lot of people who are going to see this movie. People who are like 17, 18 years old who didn't see the original in theaters who are going to be like, this is I, I've never experienced anything like this. And there's going to be a nostalgia factor for people my age, 35, who did see the movie in theaters. And it's like, wow, I'm going back to Pandora. And some of the footage I've seen, which I saw some at D23, uh, I saw some at the end of Avatar when they re-released it. And I've never seen water scenes look like this. It's really hard to do water. And the point that I try to convey to people is that you forget that this is a movie. You forget that it's all not real, that it's all made in a warehouse. And I think James Cameron is one of our best directors ever. And I think that we're going to see this have a huge, huge run 
over January, February, because there's no movies really coming out. And we could see people just keep coming back more and more and more. And I would not be shocked and mark my words if Way of Water and Wakanda Forever somehow get into the top five biggest movies of all time. Do we have any idea if these movies are going to get uh, a release in China yet? I mean, I, I know that's always a, a big question. Wakanda, I'm not sure about. Avatar most likely will. And I think that's a big part of it um, because China loves Avatar, man. Uh, they they That movie just is going to do gangbusters over there. They re-release it during like the height of the pandemic, and that's when it took back the title from Endgame. It's just every time they re-release this movie in theaters, people show up for it. And it's wild to think about that because the movie's two hours and like 45 minutes long. Yeah. And most of it is not like even like the type of action sequence you're used to. Like I was, I remember watching re-releasing the movie uh, and just the flying sequences. I was like, this is incredible. And, you know, I, I think now, you know, weed is more legalized, so that should probably <laughs> help it. Um, I'll just get in with that one. Uh, but I think ultimately... If that opens in China, I think it's going to be a huge hit. It will likely open in China. From my my sources are telling me it will. I think there's reporting out there that says it will. Um, so yeah, my guess is is that Avatar is probably going to become top five, and I would not be surprised if Wakanda follows it. And this year ends on an incredibly high note for uh, for the movie industry. But we also need to be careful because I don't see this movie opening. I don't see Way of Water opening to like two hundred million dollars. I see it opening to probably like. 100 maybe 40 or 50 million dollars and then just having an incredible run over yeah. three months yeah uh you mentioned i, I want to track back to something that you mentioned briefly just a, a second ago but you said that bros is the bomb of the summer uh yeah. bomb bomb of the year so bomb far. of the year all right bomb of the year. bigger flop. bomb bigger bigger flop than amsterdam okay so that's a good question um I would say they're one in one A, but the thing is, is that if you go up to most people and say, hey, do you know what Amsterdam is? They'd be like the city and the, the European city. Um, Bros had this vibe around it that it could have done well. And I, I always say, I, first of all, I hate using the word bomb, so I should take that back because I, I just hate it. I hate that. I think flop is a better word because it just comes with that connotation that it had expectations and then it just flopped. And that's what I'm trying to say. I don't think any expectations came into Amsterdam. I think whoever signed off on an $80 million movie <laughs> like that is Amsterdam, what are you doing? Um, think of it this way. Bros was made for very cheap. I think that only came with like a $20 million uh, budget. And, that, and it's going to struggle to make its money back. Yeah. Think about that. So like there was a lot of attention around it. And what sucks is... Is I haven't seen Amsterdam, but I've saw Bros. I really liked Bros. It was really funny. It was actually surprisingly heartwarming, like especially for a Judd Apatow movie. Usually those movies are more raunchy than heartwarming. Uh, he didn't direct it, he produced it. I should say yeah. Nicholas Stoller, who has made two of the best, you know, comedies of the last 20 years with Forgetting Sharon Marshall and, and Neighbors. And I just think that ultimately it was it's a bigger flop because it had the ability to be really a big hit. I don't, I think Amsterdam's you know, ability to be a big hit was much less, even though it had all these stars. I don't think that stars matter as much anymore, as much as the vibe of a film. And I think the vibe of Amsterdam was like, hey, you like all these people, they're in this movie. While the vibe of Rose was like, this could be a really important movie and could be 
a surprising big hit and it just it just didn't get there unfortunately yeah uh let's let's shift to talk about streaming just for a few minutes uh the the big the 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 fight on everybody's lips in the world of streaming house of dragon versus rings of power yeah where where do you come down on which of these uh shows had the bigger has had the bigger i mean house of the dragon still has one episode left rings of power is uh, wrapped up its first season. Um, mm-hmm. I'm fully caught up on both, so I, I don't worry about spoilers with me. As am I. As uh, am I. But but uh, you know, it, it, Amazon was very excited for House of the Dragon and its its early numbers. They were touting you know 25 million, 20 million, you know whatever uh, users worldwide mm-hmm. uh, watching it. Um, Rings of Power. Uh, I, I'm sorry, that was Rings of Power. House of the Dragon seems to have held better, though. It seems to be picking up audience as it goes. So, where who who is who is winning in this this fight? So, before I give my answer, let me let me give my disclaimer. I, I work disclaimer. At, <laughs> I work at Warner Brothers Discovery, which also owns HBO, which releases and produces um, House of the Dragon. Because the answer is House of the Dragon. House of the Dragon. Uh, and that's not to say that Rings of Power is not a success. I think it's a, I think it's a big success. I think they're both really big successes. I just think that House of the Dragon, it goes to show just how incredibly popular Game of Thrones was because that had a bigger uh, hill to climb, in my opinion, because this we talked about uh, bad taste in the mouth of movies like Halloween Kills, and that may have hurt Halloween Ends. I don't know if you can think of a bigger sour taste in people's mouths over the last five years than how Game of Thrones kind of came to an end. I haven't met one person who was like, yeah, that ended really well. I was really happy with it. Um, House of the Dragon is a completely different thing than than uh, Game of Thrones to a point of where it kind of bugs me even a little bit because I kind of want Game of Thrones. I want the many different families. I, I'm not a huge fan of the Targaryens. This is more succession with dragons. Um, and it's worked really well for them. And I think the way you see this, and I, I wrote a story about this, but... Basically, it's not that it it just, you know, premiered to record numbers for HBO, is that it's gotten bigger over time. And I think that really shows the quality of something is not just how big did it open to, but did it retain its audience. Now with Amazon and, and Rings of Power, it's much harder to decipher their numbers. They keep it much closer to the best. Uh, I would also say that that had... Uh, you know, that one's going to be fine. I don't think that's going to have a problem, but there is something weird about it. It doesn't feel like it's very zeitgeisty. And I think the reason why is because House of the Dragon is a better TV show. And what I mean by that is that it ends on these cliffhangers. It ends on these questions. It, it brings you back for more. It has you talking about them. When it feels like, uh, you know, Rings of Power has the has the disease that many of our pop culture has right now, which is like, just make a movie. Like this isn't a TV show. This is a nine hour movie. And I don't think that people are really talking about it as much as they should be, especially for something that costs nearly $500 million for one season. Yeah. Uh, in terms, including the rights to get Tolkien. I will see how it keeps going, but in the first round of this battle, I'm giving it to house of the dragon. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a company man. I'm saying that because ultimately uh, I know more people who are talking about it. I, I, I see the data that shows that it's growing week to week. Uh, it's definitely not Game of Thrones. I, I think these are both a little bit diminishing returns from, I, at the end of the day, I'd rather just watch Game of Thrones or Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings than either of these shows. But I definitely think that House of the Dragon is the winner so far. Yeah, I mean, the other, um, 
The other thing to kind of keep in mind here, when, when it's funny when you mention like this should have been a movie instead of a TV show. Every, the only thing I can think every time I watch Rings of Power and we get to like a big reveal or a big, a big, you know, moment in the show is, oh, I remember seeing this from the first five minutes of Fellowship of the Ring. It's a 30 hour, it's a 30 hour iteration of the first five minutes of Fellowship of the Ring. Like, and it's weird because like the difference is, is we have House of the Dragon, uh, the surprises are, are like story based, right? Yeah. Like they're just like, oh, I can't believe that person like chopped that person's head off or like that dragon showed up in the middle of like a coronation. While the Rings of Power is doing something, I think, a little very different that I haven't seen before and also kind of unique, but just doesn't work for a TV based type of show, which works more for movies, which it's like I, it, it's literally the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen meme, which it's like, oh, is that Gandalf? Oh, my God. Is that Elrond? Is that is that that character I know of their their surprises are character based. And I just think that's a weird thing to do. And like I said, it, it just feels more like a movie. And to give the, and the better way to do it, they're both weekly releases. But I waited to watch pretty much all of Rings of Power over like a weekend while I'm watching House of Dragon week to week. I just think that even though both are released, uh, I think that ultimately, uh, you know, one is better at being a television show than the other. And I think if that's what your goal is, then House of the Dragon is the one who's the victor there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, let's let's just touch on Netflix here for a second. Uh, new ad tier. What are they What are they hoping for in terms of revenue uh, and and u- new users from that? Uh, because so we we were yeah. talking about this a little before the show. But go go ahead. Yeah. So basically, I cannot describe a more nightmarish year for Netflix, maybe in their history, than this one. It literally in April, Reed Hastings was said something that he went was going against for pretty much the entire history of Netflix, which is we'll never have ads on this on this platform. And just in those six months, they've gone from never ever to now it costs $6.99 for our basic ad plan. Um, they need revenue. That's that simple put. We've been talking, I feel like the theme of this podcast has been like, you know, you have these big numbers or is this thing profitable? And for the last five years, last decade really, Hollywood has been based on Everything from streaming to movies to even television shows is like, uh, give me the numbers. You know, NFL brought in this much, you know, many TV ratings. Marvel movie opened this big. Netflix has this many subscribers. And we're seeing a transition now to more focus on ROI. Uh, what's your revenue? What's your profit? Are you bringing in money? Is that enough money for you to grow? And that's what Netflix is really trying to do with this ad, uh, this ad plan, this ad strategy. But I have two major issues with it, which is I don't know if this brings in new people. I think it brings in subscribers already who are paying $14 for Netflix. And they're like, oh, I can just pay $6 for this. That's fine. That's what I think this is worth to me. And the other issue, which I don't think people are talking about a lot, which I think is going to become a major headache going forward, is Netflix has always been artist-friendly, artist-friendly, artist-friendly. We saw this a lot during the Dave Chappelle uh, controversy with his stand-up specials, where it's just like, we support artists and whatever they say, and we're going to give people, we're not, you know, Netflix is, is, is known for not giving notes to directors, like, do whatever the hell you want. You can't do that if you got advertisers. If you have advertisers, advertisers are going to, you know, kind of like, maybe be like, we don't want our our you know, advertising on this product. And do I think that they're going to 
immediately start going, you know what, we got to really censor stuff here at Netflix. No, I think it'll be a slow drip. But if you have advertised, this is what broadcast television and, and to a certain extent cable have had to deal with for decades where it's just like ads pay the bills. And if advertisers don't like your content, um, because you just kind of having a free for all, that's going to cause a problem. And how does that impact creators who have gone to Netflix specifically? And I'm talking about David Fincher. I'm talking about Martin Scorsese. I'm talking about Ryan Murphy, Shonda Ryan, all these creators who went there because they had the creative freedom that the traditional places didn't have because they were tied to ads and they were tied to the traditional systems. How does that impact creators? And are we going to see creators now basically go, well, if I'm going to have to deal with, you know, my stuff getting notes or censored or pulled back on, I might as well just go to the, the traditional guys that I know as well, because I don't know what the hell Netflix is doing. Yeah. Uh, what do we think uh, is the impact of Knives Out hitting theaters for a week? I mean, because I, I, I look at this deal and I don't see... I don't see any difference between this and the release they did for The Gray Man yeah. or the release they did for uh, Army of the Dead or Red Notice, except for the fact that it seems to be in a few more theaters. But it's still it's still a one week thing there. I, I will I will believe that they are advertising this like they mean it when I see it mm -hmm. and I haven't seen it yet. Um, so what do what do we think? Uh, what do we think that this this actually means for th Netflix in theaters? I think it is simultaneously a big deal and not a deal at all. That is how I feel about it. And what I mean by that is it's not a deal at all because we're only talking about 600 theaters here across Cinemark, Regal, AMC. That's nothing. Most, you know, I mean, I think Top Gun had 4,000 screens. Right. Like, it's not a huge release. We're not going to see Netflix, like, start marketing the hell out of this. Um, the reason I do think it's a big deal, however, is I think it's a really interesting template for how streamers and uh, traditional theatrical can come together. Because basically what Netflix is doing is having uh, theaters kind of market this movie for them. And I don't mean like in the traditional sense, like you're gonna see AMC like basically be like, come see Knives Out. But just the fact that it's in theaters, uh, you're going to have people, cause we're all, listen, we all have lizard brains. And at the end of the day, if I say to a friend of mine, like, I saw this movie, I'm seeing this movie this week, and they go, oh, can I watch it on Netflix? And I'm like, no, you gotta wait a month. People are gonna go like, well, screw that, I don't wanna be left out, I wanna watch this movie now. And they're, you're basically paying a premium to see it a month early. If this movie opened two weeks later, I don't think it would've really, I, I would've been like, okay, whatever, they're just kinda like dipping their toes in to try out theatrical. A month's a really long time, especially for a murder mystery movie that has like potential spoilers to it. And I think this goes back to why a lot of like movies like Marvel do really well that first week and why Game of Thrones always does well on Sunday night. You don't want to be left out of the conversation. And Knives Out has a really loyal following. I haven't met anybody who doesn't like Knives Out. I like Knives Out. It, I've heard nothing but good things about Glass Onion. I think it's a big deal because I think if this works, and we won't know it works because Netflix is not going to give out box office numbers. Right. Right. Um, but if, you know, theaters are happy and Netflix is happy, this could be an olive branch to maybe the next film being a thousand theaters and then 1500, then 2000. And I don't think it hurts Netflix at all because you can still like wait till January, I'm mean, not January, December 23rd to watch the movie with your Netflix subscription. But for the freaks of us like me and you who want to see everything in theaters, especially this movie, 
we're going to pay the premium because we already probably have 17 season passes. We might as well just go. <laughs> um, and I think that's really interesting. And I, I think it's a really big, I think it's a good step. It's a, you, know, you got to crawl before you can walk. And this is a good crawl. Yeah. Uh, I, as you know, I always like to close by asking if there's anything I should have asked. What do you think folks should know about what's going on in the, the, the industry right now? Uh, Frank, what, what is something I forgot in my foolishness and haste to ask? Uh, we kind of talked about it a little bit and I, I always look at this question. I always hate this question because I never know. And I'm just like, now I'm going to take it as like, what's the theme that I'm trying to get at for when we talked to each other three, six months, a year from now, since you don't call me enough anymore. Um, I think everything that old, everything that was old is new again. I think that is what we're going to see. I think we're starting to see this at WBD, where I work, Warner Brothers Discovery, where it's uh, we're starting to see this at Disney a little bit. Starting to see this at Paramount. Where what I mean by it is, we're starting to see people go was going all in on streaming the right strategy, and I think most of these you know CEOs and studios are going no. But uh, I don't think they're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater either. I think they're realizing streaming is what it's always was, which is a tentacle of a bigger monster. And I think we're going to see in the next couple months more of a pullback. Like we're already starting to see, like I'll bring up Disney, for example, Armor. Uh, what, what is the name of the Marvel movie with Don Cheadle? Armor or something. Armor Wars. Armor Wars. Yes. They're putting that in theaters. That was a movie. That was a Disney Plus series they're putting in theaters. And I saw that as a huge signal from Disney basically going like, listen, we love Disney Plus. Disney Plus is our most important asset in our portfolio right now, but we also really like making money. And I think we're going to start seeing uh, this kind of pullback from studios just a little bit, not too much uh, of this. This is a way for us to make money. And we're not going to just give that up because, you know, analysts and investors are telling us that this is the future. I think the future is always what the past is, which is how do you make money? Does this thing make us money? If it doesn't, well, let's keep making money the way we always have. It's about it's about future proofing, but I don't think we're going to see as much, uh, you know, embracing the future as we have in the past, uh, have in the last ten years. I think we're going to start seeing the fever break a little bit, and kind of these studios get a little bit less high off their own supply. Yeah. Uh, Frank, thanks for, as always, for being on the show. You can see his, uh, you can read his stuff at CNN.com. He's, he is on the TV. Uh, go, go watch and read, uh, Frank Pelota. Uh, I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.